Hello and welcome to Climate Break. I'm Ken Alex, the Director of Project Climate at UC Berkeley. And today I'm very pleased to be joined by Professor Dan Farber of UC Berkeley Law School. Professor Farber is one of the nation's leading scholars of environmental and constitutional law. His work is among the most cited and influential in the country. And he also has a deep knowledge of the Supreme Court itself, having clerked for Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens. Dan's most recent book is called Contested Ground, How to Understand the Limits of Presidential Power. So, Professor Farber, Dan, thank you for joining Climate Break. Great to be here. The Supreme Court last week issued probably one of its most important environmental decisions in a decade or more called West Virginia versus EPA. And it also deals with the limits of presidential power. So right up your alley. I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about the background of the case and and what's at stake. I think the story really begins with an earlier Supreme Court decision won by Justice Stevens, although long after I had been a law clerk, so I can't claim any credit. That case was Massachusetts versus EPA. And the Supreme Court held in that case that EPA had jurisdiction to regulate greenhouse gases under the federal air pollution law, the Clean Air Act. So the next question was, how should EPA go about using the Clean Air Act to regulate? That's actually pretty straightforward for certain kinds of emissions. It's really straightforward for carbon emissions from cars and trucks. I mean, there are technical problems, but legally there's a provision in the statute that just fits right in. And it also is relatively straightforward for new factories and new power plants. The tricky part, though, is how to regulate emissions from existing power plants and then maybe ultimately factories and other existing sources. And the problem is that the Clean Air Act was written pretty much with urban air pollution in mind when they were creating the provisions for regulating existing sources. And those provisions aren't really a very good fit with greenhouse gases and climate change. So as soon as EPA was told that they were supposed to regulate greenhouse gases, they started going through the the law, which is like 300 pages long, and trying to find good hooks where they could have a legal basis for regulating. The one they settled on was something called Section 111D, which was pretty obscure at the time. It had only been used maybe a half dozen times and not in really high profile regulations. But EPA decided after looking at a variety of different provisions that this one was the best bet. Under the Obama administration, EPA issued what's called the Clean Power Plan. The Clean Power Plan basically tells states that they need to shift the energy sources used to power their electricity grids, and they need to shift them away from coal and at the other end toward renewable energy. So really the plan is an effort to to sort of form 
state energy systems transforms a little strong because it was a sort of gradual transformation and the initial steps that the agency took in the plan were not very rigorous but nevertheless the idea was to look beyond the individual power plant with its smokestack and boilers or whatever and instead sort of look at the power grid in the state as a whole the EPA's legal basis for doing that was that section 111d says that EPA should use the best system to reduce emissions and so a really simple way of looking at the legal issue is what is a system typically in regulating pollution EPA looks at individual pollution sources again like maybe a power plant and they say for example to reduce your sulfur dioxide emissions you need to either switch to low sulfur coal or you need to uh, install scrubbers and scrubbers are sort of the answer to a bunch of different pollution problems an incomplete answer by the way i mean they're still not at all clean but what epa was doing here was much different and the reason is that there at present we don't have an affordable technology that you could install in the smokestack to get rid of the carbon dioxide we might have one someday we maybe could use that technology to get rid of some of the emissions from the smokestack but we're just not there and so if you want to reduce the amount of carbon emissions from coal plants basically this is not 100% accurate but pretty close you got to get them to burn less coal and you got to get the power system to use other power sources and that's what EPA was trying to do one of the unusual aspects of the case is that the supreme court seemed to go far out of its way to to take the case because the clean power plant which you mentioned isn't actually in operation anymore as you said it was done in the obama administration but the trump administration withdrew it and the biden administration did not put it back into operation so am i right in saying that this is pretty unusual for the supreme court to have kind of grabbed this case you could say technically the plan isn't quite dead the clean power plan but really close and normally you would expect the supreme court to wait to find out what the biden administration wanted to do to replace the clean power plan and the trump plan before jumping in to give a legal opinion i think this is part of a trend where they seem to be eager to decide certain issues and they just jump at the first opportunity it's not a trend that i think we should be happy about but it was also a really clear signal in this case that the clean power plan was doomed they didn't go through all this just so they could turn around and uphold it and i don't think anyone expected epa to win the case so so having having said that and um you know starting off with the idea that this is such an important case why is it an important case and what has the supreme court decided to do okay so it's an important case because these existing power plants especially coal but also natural gas contribute a major share of the of US carbon emissions and so if we're going to meet our targets for the paris agreement or just generally do something about climate change we've got to address those emissions and the supreme court clearly has made it more difficult to do that if the court had ruled the other way epa would have had all kinds of possibilities sort of like the california air resources board 
at, at the state level. They would have had a lot of flexibility in trying to come up with good solutions to cut emissions. As it is, their options are more limited and they won't be able to do as much. I think they can still do some things, so it's not a complete loss of authority, but it certainly makes it harder. The other thing about the case that's significant, and this goes to the presidential power point that you mentioned earlier, is that the court used something it calls the major question doctrine as the basis for striking down the clean power plan. The major questions doctrine is something that's sort of gradually grown out of, you know, just like a small seed, maybe 20 years ago. And it's now a significant threat to a lot of different kinds of regulation. The major questions doctrine says that there are some, that there are some issues that are so big that Congress either needs to decide the issue by itself or be really clear that it's turning the issue over to an agency to decide. And if it's not really clear, the agency loses. The big questions have been, and I guess still are to some extent, how do you decide what makes it a major question? And then how clear does the evidence have to be? There's a lot of dispute uh, among like administrative law scholars who specialize in this stuff about what to think about the West Virginia case in terms of the major question doctrine. So some people are really uh, deeply concerned that the court has applied the doctrine in such an important setting, and they are afraid that the doctrine will now sort of metastasize and get in the way of all kinds of other government regulations. Basically, any time a majority in the Supreme Court feels that they're both bad and important. I belong to kind of a, a maybe smaller but more optimistic group. I think Chief Justice Roberts in this case it makes an effort to put some guardrails around the doctrine. We don't know if those guardrails will hold in the future, but I think he's applying it in a way that's more restricted. He emphasizes that this was a very obscure provision that EPA's action was unprecedented. It had never used even this provision or in this way. It had not really done anything similar to this in other air pollution regulations, at least in the court's opinion. And that Congress had repeatedly rejected legislation that was at least somewhat similar to the Clean Power Plan. So the way I would like to read that is to say that something is a major question when an agency sort of jumps out of its usual regulatory practices and its usual area of regulation and tries to do something different. That is, as opposed to just controlling emissions, the court says EPA was trying to basically take over running the electrical grid, and that's not EPA's job. So I would like to view it as a really an injunction to agencies to stay in your lane. But if you're doing that, I think agencies can still do big things. Well, let me let me pose it this way. So Massachusetts versus EPA, which you mentioned earlier, um, the Supreme Court in, in a five to four ruling said that the Clean Air Act for mobile sources, meaning cars and trucks on the road, that that the Clean Air Act covered greenhouse gas emissions, not just what we call criteria pollutants like 
knocks and socks. So what I want to ask you is if the West Virginia case came first and now we're faced with the Massachusetts versus EPA case, do you think that the question of whether EPA could control or limit greenhouse gas emissions from mobile sources, would that be a major question? Nice hypothetical. Uh, you're sharing that along. <laughs> you, yeah, you can use that next year at your exam. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's a little hard to answer because I think it's quite clear that this court would never have voted the same way in Massachusetts versus EPA, even without the major question doctrine. I would argue, no, that it shouldn't preclude EPA from regulating greenhouse gases. And the reason is that especially with mobile emissions, it would really be engaging in a very familiar exercise of trying to reduce the emissions from individual sources by, in this case, making the sources more fuel efficient. And I think that is within the bounds of what it has done with other regulations of vehicles. So I, I would argue that the doctrine would not apply in that case. But I I don't think it's crystal clear. I mean, I think there's going to be more of a question in the future when regulatory agencies try to regulate in a new area or regulate a new technology. And it's not clear how the lower courts are going to respond to West Virginia versus EPA. So this was characterized to some extent as a separation of powers case that if Congress doesn't speak to the issue pretty specifically on a major question that the executive branch, meaning the president, doesn't have the authority to act. His agencies can't do regulations on the issue. But isn't there also an element that this gives the Supreme Court, the third branch of government, an inordinate amount of authority and power to determine what is a a major question, which, you know, you're you're trying to put some some um, parameters on or the chief justice may have tried to do. What do you think about the Supreme Court's role going forward or even district court's role? I think the Supreme Court is definitely not shy about sort of making its views known and maybe you could say throwing its weight around uh, these days. I think you could see this major question doctrine as being kind of at the opposite end from the Chevron doctrine. The Chevron doctrine allows agencies leeway to uh, interpret the laws that they implement as long as the interpretations are reasonable. And that doctrine is based very clearly on a view that administrative agencies are really active partners in making laws work and adapting them to new circumstances and resolving tensions within the law or filling gaps rather than simply passive servants who uh, use the dictionary and try to figure out just what the law means. And the, the clear error aspect of the major question doctrine is really takes an opposing view that at least with really big issues, the agency isn't supposed to play that kind of sort of junior partner to the legislature role, that it's really the legislature, Congress, that has to decide on these big questions, at least decide specifically that it wants the agency to regulate in those areas. 
And I think there is a separation of powers basis for that, an idea that big policies should be made by Congress, not by the executive branch. But the court also says it's partly rooted in common sense, that it's just not reasonable to assume that Congress meant to give EPA power to revamp the electric power sector pretty substantially based on this tiny little provision buried in the middle of the Clean Air Act that nobody even had heard of before this. And I think Roberts is actually kind of eager to de-emphasize the separation of powers part of it uh, compared to Justice Gorsuch, who writes a separate opinion that really goes to town on the possible constitutional issues in the case and about how expensive the clean power plan would be and a bunch of other stuff. And one of the things that makes me a little hopeful about this case is that Justice Gorsuch only got one other justice to sign on to his separate opinion, which may mean that at least another uh, one or two justices at least agree with Roberts that the court needs to be very careful with this major questions doctrine because of the risk that you indicate that it can be used in any case for anything unless they're very careful about trying to put up some guardrails. At least that's my semi-optimistic view. I, I appreciate that. Um, the, the Gorsuch concurring opinion is interesting. He lays out seven or eight criteria for a very developed concept of, of what a major question might be. It struck me that he might have been trying to write the majority opinion and didn't get enough votes. What do you, given your Supreme Court experience, what do you think? I think it would be pretty usual for him to be assigned the majority opinion in a situation where he had so little support for his view. And usually in that situation, at least some people will just hang on with this, you know, with the, the justice who was originally assigned the opinion just to avoid embarrassing them. If they know that it's no longer going to be a majority opinion, they, you know, they may just leave their name in anyway so that it doesn't look like, you know, this person wrote a majority opinion and got no support. So I'm kind of inclined to doubt that. Um, I do think he really wanted to write the majority opinion. And even if he wasn't assigned the majority opinion, looks like he was going to try to write it anyway. I, I think probably more likely Roberts gave himself this opinion from the beginning because it's the chief justice who assigns opinions when the when they're in the majority. I can't be positive of that. I mean, the, the majority opinion for a Supreme Court opinion these days isn't that long. So maybe it was written, you know, later. On the other hand, there was so much going on with the abortion case and religion cases and a whole bunch of other things that it could just be that Roberts, you know, didn't have enough time to write one of those 70 or 80 elaborately footnoted majority opinions that the court issues sometimes. Whichever way it is, though, I'm really I'm I'm very glad that Gorsuch and his view isn't the majority opinion in the case. Well, since you've given us a dose of optimism here, what's your what's your feeling about what can still be done uh, under the Clean Air Act under Section 111? So, first of all, nothing in the opinion casts any shade on other things EPA is doing, like regulating methane or regulating emissions from vehicles, and I think that's important. In terms of existing plants, I think that there are very likely things that EPA can still do for coal-fired power plants. 
when they burn the coal, they have to add usually natural gas, sometimes some other fuel. And at least some studies I've seen indicate that they could cut the carbon emissions from coal plants about in half, somewhere in that vicinity, by using that tool. So that is still not as much as you would ideally like, but nevertheless a significant contribution. I think trying to figure out what to do about natural gas plants is more difficult. And I've seen some speculation about approaches EPA could take, like, for example, requiring them to use biogas or hydrogen as well as natural gas. But I don't really have a clear sense of how realistic those options are. I just don't know enough. I'm, uh, I don't know enough about the engineering and the economics involved. Fortunately, the market is moving toward renewable energy, and I think that may be, in the end, what saves us. Yeah, I think in some ways the coal fire piece of this is somewhat less important. There are no new coal plants being built in the U.S. A lot of them are converting at least to natural gas. As you say, hydrogen may be a replacement as well. So there at least seems to be on the narrow question of, of power plants, maybe not the biggest harm. But in terms of what constitutes a major question, I don't know if ironic is the right word, but the issues that have the most consequence are the ones most likely to be major questions and the ones where you want to have, you know, the ability to act. <laughs> so I have some concerns going forward that the major question doctrine is a way for the Supreme Court to preclude action by the executive branch. Actually, in terms of application of this doctrine, I'm more disturbed by the COVID cases in uh, which the Supreme Court said that the CDC couldn't ban evictions, couldn't have an eviction moratorium to keep people from getting COVID. And the uh, court said that OSHA couldn't have a vaccine mandate in the workplace because that exactly fits what you were talking about, right? A situation where action is urgently needed where we have these sort of vague statutes that maybe weren't written for, you know, nobody was expecting a pandemic when they wrote the statute. And the court is not being sympathetic to the idea that the executive branch needs to step into the breach of when we have these crisis situations. I suspect that in a future crisis, we're going to be really sorry that the court has uh, construed uh, emergency authority so narrowly. Well, let me, let me ask you, maybe um, this will be my, my last at least big question for you is um, you've done a lot of work looking at the response of government to disasters and the use of emergency authority. At this point, is there any advantage or any potential for the president to declare a national emergency around climate? And would that provide any additional authority? I think in, in theory, at least, it would provide some additional authority. I don't think it would be a game changer in terms of the government's authority, but it might allow them to do some things in terms of prioritizing renewable energy or in terms of maybe putting some of the brakes on oil and gas development. But I have to say that I, I would be very worried at this point that the Supreme Court would conclude that extending the National Disasters Act or the National Emergency Act to include climate change would be a major question. I can imagine they could be resistant to going in that direction. Toward the end of the opinion, the court says, 
A decision of this magnitude can only be made by Congress or by an agency operating with clear authority from Congress. And that does suggest that if Congress wanted to pass climate change legislation, they probably could give pretty broad powers to EPA as long as it was sort of at least sort of generally clear what specific problems EPA was supposed to deal with. And they were given some kind of standard for their regulations. That's an idea that Gorsuch would hate. And maybe it's only theoretical because Congress doesn't like to these days to pass simple laws that establish general principles and leave the details to someone else. But I do think that that is somewhat encouraging in terms of what Congress could do. I think everyone has known from the beginning that ultimately we need legislation. No matter how generously you interpret EPA's powers, they're not broad enough to do everything we need done. And Congress at some point is just going to have to face the reality of climate change and pass climate legislation if we're going to continue to make progress past, say, our 2030 goals. Well, that seems like a a perfect place to end with Congress and stasis. (laughs) Thank you so much, Professor Farber. This is Climate Break. If you want more, please visit our website at climatebreak.org. Thank you again.